from Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy, satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this is the story that has been spread among the Jews to this day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we continue, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we uh, thank you that you are not a God who is silent, but that you are a God who speaks to us through your word. And so we ask even now in this time where we are listening, uh, that you would help us to hear. We pray that you would help me to speak faithfully and clearly, that together we might see Jesus more clearly and be made more like him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I suspect at least some, if not all of us, probably not all of us, in this congregation are Star Wars fans. If you're not, don't worry. This is not all going to be about Star Wars. It's just an opening illustration. But I, I am a Star Wars fan. And if you are like me, you probably on the first couple of weeks saw The Force Awakens when it came out a few years ago. And there's, I know, a lot of different opinions of whether that was a good movie or not. But I'll tell you, there was a scene for me, even I saw in the trailers that I was excited about, and it was probably my favorite scene in the movies. Right in the middle, it's kind of this gentle scene where you've got Rey, who's the main character, who is flying in the Millennium Falcon, which already is awesome. And, and she meets Han Solo. You know, living legend Han Solo, now older, a bit more grizzled. And... And Ray does exactly what I would do if I were in her situation. She asks him about the past, about Luke Skywalker and, and the Force. And he says, and there's like kind of this reflective moment where he kind of pauses and he says, you know, I used to think it was all a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. But the crazy thing is, it's true. The Force... Jedi, all of it, it's all true. Now, they totally wrote that scene for the 10-year-old in me. I mean, don't you think, I mean, for me, I was just imagining 
when I was a 10-year-old, and maybe you were like this, I so wanted Star Wars to be true. I mean, wouldn't it have been awesome to just be like, you know, making the jump to, to light speed on the Millennium Falcon or, or having one of those lightsabers? I mean, who of us as a kid who was a boy didn't have one of those that went zoom, zoom, and we're just imagining the reality of it? I mean, maybe even you, if you were like me as a 10-year-old when you were letting your imagination just get a little bit the better of you, you kind of did the and hope that your beanbag chair would like go across the room, even if it, it didn't. And wouldn't you have loved to have, you know, while you're walking back from school, Han Solo meeting you, tapping you on the shoulder and saying, it's true. It's all true. Now, maybe for you, Star Wars was never the thing. Maybe for you, it was all about superpowers. Maybe as a nine or eight-year-old, you would take your blanket and tie it around your neck and just kind of hope that maybe it was true enough that if you jumped, you would keep going and always were disappointed. Or, or maybe for you, it was about knights and fairy tales and and princes and, and princesses, and you would have loved, loved to have a moment where like your fairy godmother came and woke you up and said, it's true, it's all true, wouldn't you? So I've been thinking uh, this week, the last couple of weeks, about Matthew. Matthew is the person, according to church tradition, who wrote the account that we just read, um, the, the book of the Bible that we read from. He was a disciple of Jesus. And I imagine that Matthew, as a kid, he must have been like that. He, you know, he must have had those same kind of desires. I mean, for him, of course, it wasn't going to be Star Wars. It wasn't going to be about knights and castles. For him, the stories that would have been awesome were, were stories of you know, Moses calling down frogs and leading people out of the Red Sea and, and Elijah stopping rain for two years before calling down fire on the altar. I mean, for him... Prophets would have been the Jedi of his day, except they're more awesome because it's not just some force, it's, it's God himself, the God of Israel. And, I mean, he was, he grew up in this town in the middle of nowhere, Capernaum, so he's not even in the center of Israel. He's way out in the middle of nowhere in a country that's in the middle of nowhere, and even more to the point, for hundreds of years, he would have lived amongst the people who had never seen anything like that. He wouldn't have known anyone who had seen miracles. All you had was stories from hundreds of years ago of, of God doing these remarkable things. And I imagine he sometimes probably as a kid just longed, you know, when he was walking down a path to suddenly have someone tap him on the shoulder and realize, it's Moses. And, and Moses saying, kid, it's true. The Red Sea, manna, the power of God, it's all true. Of course, Matthew, like all of us, he grew up, right? And as he grew up, probably some of that, that excited idealism kind of faded and, and reality kind of hit. And he, it's not that he probably forgot about these stories of what God had done, but they just kind of became less importance to him. He had to figure out how to make a living. Jobs weren't easy, and he was offered a job. It wasn't, it wasn't a good job. It was a job of being a tax collector, collecting taxes for Herod, which would mean he was unpopular with the entire town. But you can make a living. 
especially if you are willing to kind of cut some corners and ask a little bit more of taxes than you really needed so that you could put that in your pocket. And if you worked hard enough and, and long enough, you could do well and support your family. And more and more, as Matthew grew older, those, those stories became something that were in the rearview mirror. Until one day, things changed in a really significant fashion for Matthew. He's in the middle of the town, sitting at a table, at a booth. There's a line of people. He's got, you know, his written register of what everyone owes him, and they're just kind of lining up, waiting to pay him as is their due. And, and then out of the corner of his eye, he sees someone looking at him. And he kind of looks and realizes somebody recognizes. It's, it's Jesus, who he's seen preach before. And man, this guy can preach. And he has heard crazy things about this man. And as this man, Jesus, is looking at him, he, he speaks to Matthew. He says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew, who may well have not done anything impulsive for years, anything unpredictable for years, pauses, thinks, pushes himself away from the, toll booth, the tax collector booth, stands up, and decides in that moment to follow Jesus. And for Matthew, the next two years are like he is living in a dream. As he is going with Jesus from town to town, he is living the stuff of the Old Testament before his very eyes. I mean, every day he is talking with, he is having lunch with a modern-day Elijah or Moses, except he's even better because the healings that he does again and again, the ability to take five loaves and feed more than 5,000 people. He's even seen Jesus bring someone from death to life. And, and what Jesus says, what he says about the kingdom, Matthew doesn't really understand it, but man, it, it sounds amazing. And so it seems like Every day he is seeing signs all around him that are saying, it is true. All of it, it's all true. But then his life takes another turn, and this one's a much darker turn. It's Thursday night, he and his other fellow disciples and Jesus are in a garden it's been a really interesting, kind of exciting week. Jesus came just a few days ago in a really public way on a donkey, showing that he is the king. He has been putting those teachers in their place by the way he's speaking. He's been healing. It's been awesome. But on Thursday night, something happens that Matthew completely cannot understand. Soldiers come, soldiers who are sent by the priests of the temple come and they arrest Jesus. And, and Matthew doesn't understand, why doesn't Jesus do something? I mean, Jesus is able to speak and make an entire storm stop. He could do something, but he just, he just goes with these guards. And then this kind of mockery of a trial that takes place overnight in darkness for almost no one to see. Well, whenever they speak to Jesus, Jesus, this person who is able to speak in a such commanding fashion with such authority, he stays silent. And then on Friday morning, the utterly unthinkable takes place. As, as Matthew 
watches from afar because he's afraid of being found out as a follower of Jesus. This this prophet that is greater even than Moses and Elijah, more powerful, more amazing, is hung naked on this cross. Bloody, weak, and shame. So much shame as, as mockers and others come by and just make fun of him. And it's hour after agonizing hour of unthinkableness before Jesus, hanging on the cross, breathes out his last and has taken down this cold and lifeless corpse and put in a tomb. And even as Jesus is buried, so also are Matthew's hopes and dreams. If this is what happened to this person who, who looked like he was the king, how can anything that Jesus said be true? If this is what happened, how can God be real? How can any of it be real? How can any of this be true? But then Matthew's life takes another sharp turn. And, and this turn is recorded for us in the passage that was just read. Two of Matthew's friends, Mary Magdalene and another Mary, they were people who had been traveling with Jesus for as long as Matthew had. He would have seen them daily. He would have known them well. And he tells the story that they told to him. Early on Sunday morning, they woke up. They woke up because they wanted to go to the body of Jesus to anoint him with oil and with spices, which was a way of honoring the dead. And they walk, and as they get close to the tomb, something completely unexpected takes place. They feel the earth shaking, and they see this bright light, this man who somehow light is originating from him, and and maybe they eventually realize it's an angel. And, And as this earth quakes, the stone is moved. And the stone, by the way, is not moved to let anyone out. That's always a misunderstanding about this moment. The stone is moved to let them in. And the angel speaks to these two terrified women and 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 the angel says, do not be afraid. So they come closer. Do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. And then as they draw near, the angel says, he's not here. For he has risen Just as he said, come and look and see where he lay. Do you hear that? He has risen just as he said, come and see. The angel is saying to them, it's true. And so they go and they look and there is no body in the tomb where they know Jesus was laid just a couple of days ago. And so they leave and they're confused, they're overwhelmed, they're beginning to perhaps feel joy. And we have this 
moment that I love, to me, it's a sign that Jesus clearly has a sense of humor. So I think they must be kind of looking down, not seeing where they're going, because it says, suddenly, or behold, Jesus appeared to them. So I imagine them kind of like just suddenly bumping in to Jesus. And what does Jesus say the moment they meet the risen Jesus for the first time? They say, behold, I am your risen king. No, he says, hi there. I mean, that's, greetings literally is just, Hello. And I think he must have been feeling like there must have been some humor for him to kind of speak in that way. But they, they don't see the humor right now. They're just overwhelmed. They're afraid. Of course they're afraid. Someone has just conquered death. This has never happened before. And so what do they do? They fall at his feet and they hold on to his feet and they realize that he's really there because they can feel his feet and they're worshiping him. And what does he say to them? He says, once again, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell Peter and James and John and Matthew. Go and tell them to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Jesus is saying, what I said is true. I have risen from the dead. It is true. So the women go back and eventually they tell, she tells the disciples, and the disciples, if we were to keep on reading beyond what was read this morning, we would know that they end up meeting Jesus in Galilee. Matthew and all of them, they see Jesus, and that's one of many times that over the next 40 days, they see the risen Lord. They see that Jesus truly has risen from the dead. But it's interesting to me, Matthew has one other detail that he records, and that's the story of the guards. If you were listening carefully, you might have noticed that there were these guards at the tomb. Uh, in the previous chapter, Pilate says, and again, I think this is a wonderful moment of irony, you have a guard of soldiers, go make the tomb as secure as you can. This is an abject failure for these guards. When the angel comes, they don't do so well. When the angel comes, it says that they are paralyzed with fear and they fall as if dead. In other words, they are so frightened that they faint. Now, we shouldn't be too hard on these guards. I mean, when you sign up for guarding a tomb duty, I don't think you expect to get a lot of action. They are not really ready for this. But when they come to, they notice that the stone is rolled away, that the tomb is empty, that no one else is around, and they don't know what to do. So, so they just go back to the priests that sent them. I think they probably are expecting a reprimand because they clearly have failed. But instead, they get a bribe. And, and here's what the priests say. Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Just think about that for a moment. If they were asleep, how would they know that the disciples came? It, it's, it's not a story that makes any sense. But here's what Matthew concludes with this passage. So they took the bribe, they took the money, and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now let me ask you, why do you think it is that Matthew includes this little anecdote? The other gospel writers who also are describing what took place and some of their eyewitness testimony, they don't include this. But Matthew does. And I think it's because he's writing to those very people that have heard this story. He's writing to people who are perhaps a little uncertain of what to do 
about the story of the resurrection. Some ways you can think of, he's, he's writing to people like you and me. I mean, we know that there are different accounts, different theories of what took place on that day. Perhaps some of you, even this morning, you come here because you like to celebrate Easter, but a part of you goes, I, I just don't know what to think about this. You know, I would love for this all to be true. I would love it if it's true that the Son of God became one of us to die for us and he rose again. I would love it if it is true that we have hope and that he invites us to become his children. I would love it if it's true that there is a deeper reality, one that I cannot see where God is real. But I have to be honest, this is so big and so unusual and so unlike anything else that I have ever heard or seen or experienced that it is hard for me to believe. We're not alone. I, I hope you understand that just because people lived 2,000 years ago, that didn't mean they suddenly went, ah, resurrection, okay, I buy that. It was completely strange for them as well. And so that's why Matthew, he's including this because he's saying, I realize that you might have heard different things. And here's what Matthew is saying. He's saying to them, and he's saying to you and to me, you know, there was a time when I doubted as well. But here's the crazy thing. It's true. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, Salvation. It's all true. See, we can forget sometimes the Bible seems like this just kind of dusty book that kind of came into existence by itself, but it didn't. It's the collection of people's testimonies. Matthew is a person who lived in that day, and he's sharing with us what we need to say. He's sharing with us the story of two of his best friends, who saw the risen Jesus that very first morning. And he and, and many other witnesses are sharing their testimony, not of a legend that they've heard rumors about, but of actually themselves seeing Jesus face to face, not once, but repeatedly, time after time after Jesus' resurrection. And he is saying, I was there, and I want you to know it's true. And if you want to know, okay, but can I really trust Matthew? I want you just to consider three things briefly. First, I want you to consider what we might call the corroborating evidence. There's an empty tomb. And there's no historian that I know of that suggests that there wasn't, because if there were an empty tomb, we know that there was clear resistance to Christianity. And don't you think any of the religious leaders could have stopped Christianity in its tracks simply by saying, look, here's the body of Jesus. So how do we explain the empty tomb? Do we buy the story that the guards were asleep, but yet they noticed the disciples, but yet they didn't stop him? Or maybe the disciples overpowered the guards? Why would they even do this? They were exhausted. They were dejected. The person that they put all their hope in had just died a terrible death. Why would they choose to now try to rescue the body and claim something that they knew wasn't true? So how do we explain that the tomb where Jesus was laid is now empty? 
And think also not only about the corroborating evidence, but the way that Matthew tells this story. He tells it in a way that shows that he's a trustworthy person. There's a few ways that I could show you this, but here's just one detail. Do you notice what he says are the two first witnesses of Jesus? They're women. And that might not seem significant to you, but here's what you need to know. In that day, women were not even allowed in many courts to bear witness because they were considered too emotional to be reliable. They were, and there's a very sexist age. So let me ask you this. If Matthew is wanting to write something that is going to persuade the people of his time, don't you think he's going to write the thing that seems the most reliable if he can? Don't you think he would say that it's too two more reliable witnesses. But no, he doesn't. He goes to the people that aren't actually going to be terribly persuasive. Why would he do that if he's just trying to convince people of something? The only reason he starts by telling us of these two women witnesses is because it's true. Or think about the reliability of just Matthew himself. I've never been in a trial, but I watch many on TV. And, and what I know from that is oftentimes if you have witnesses, they will try to cast doubt on the witnesses by saying, look, this witness is getting paid so much money to be here, or, or this witness is getting out of jail because he's sharing here. If you have some sort of reason to speak, it makes you less reliable. But, but think about the witnesses of the resurrection. What do they gain? Do you want to know what happens if you're a witness of the resurrection? You likely will get killed. James, two years after the resurrection of Jesus, gets killed by the Jewish leadership. Peter gets imprisoned multiple times, and eventually, according to church tradition, he gets hung upside down and killed, crucified upside down and killed. John doesn't get killed, but he is exiled. And Matthew, according to some traditions, ends up going as a missionary to Ethiopia, where he is martyred. That is, he is killed for his testimony. There is not a whole lot to be gained if you are saying, I saw the risen Jesus, and yet 500 people are recorded as having said exactly that, why would they do that? Why would they hold on to something if they knew it wasn't true, even though it would kill them? I can think of only one reason why they're holding fast this witness, because they know they don't need to be afraid of death. Because they've seen death conquered. Because they've seen the risen Jesus. See, these witnesses, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Peter, James, John, and, and Matthew, they come to us and they say, I want you to know it is true. All of it is true. And just think of what that means. That the God of the universe became one of us to live in this world and die for us. That's true. That he who died for us conquered death and evil itself and says, come to me and I will share with you the life that I have won. Come so that you might be saved. That's true. That we have a God who loves us more than we can possibly imagine, even though we are more sinful than we can possibly realize. That is true. It's all true. 
That's the testimony. And, and the question that I think we are asked is, do you and I believe that? I'll tell you that I do. I'm not someone who feels comfortable just kind of believing anything, but the more that I have studied, the more that I have listened to the testimony of Scripture, the more that I have realized that it is the best possible way of understanding this world. I believe that these witnesses are reliable and true. And in my life, I have found no more coherent way of understanding this life, no more powerful way of being changed, no more certain hope than the message that we have in the gospel and God's word about what Jesus has done. And the question that is posed for all of us is, do you agree? Do you believe that this is true, that all of this is true? Because if you do, then the obvious question is, what does that mean for us? Because if this is real, if, if the Son of God has become a part of this world and has conquered sin and death, that should be big enough to make a difference in our lives, shouldn't it? If you are new with us this morning, and that's a question that you're wanting to think through, and I hope it is, because it's like the most important question that you can think about. I'd like to encourage you to try something. Come with us for the next few weeks. I'm going to be starting a series where it's just about that question, how the risen Jesus makes a difference in our lives. And I'd love to have you with us as we're thinking that through, because it's something all of us need to think about. If, if this is all true, doesn't it make a difference in who you are and what you believe and how you should live? I'm telling you, Matthew clearly had his answer to that question. Matthew left everything. He left his home. He left his job. And he went to follow Jesus. And he did it even unto death. Because he believed that if Jesus truly has risen from the dead, then that means everything. Do you agree? You know, our tradition in our church is we believe that when we are looking at God's word, God is actually speaking to us. And so the single most important thing we can do is to listen. And so one of the ways that we kind of try to live that out and how we do things on Sunday morning is we take some time after having thought about God's word together to pause and respond in prayer. So we're going to have a few minutes of silence, and, and here's what I'd like you to do. However you feel like God has been speaking to you, maybe you don't even know, and it's just a time for you to think about this. That's great. Or maybe it's a time for you to pray and say, God, could you please, if you are there, show yourself to me. Help me to see if Jesus is real. Or, or maybe you, you believe, and maybe the prayer is, Lord, I realize I haven't lived out what you've called me to. Please forgive me. Please show me how to live following Jesus. Well, wherever that is, you, you spend some time in silence doing business with God, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a few minutes' time. So would you please join with me in silent prayer?
And Lord God, I think we think of the moments when there is this man who felt weak in Jesus' presence and he confessed, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Father, I imagine many of us find ourselves in a similar place that, that a part of us believes and yet we also feel the reality of our doubts. And so we, we confess our lack of seeing you clearly. And Lord, we ask that you would help us in our unbelief, reassure us of the reality that Jesus has truly risen from the dead and that that has changed everything. I pray for people even now who are feeling the weakness of uncertainty about that, that you would show us, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, that you would draw each of us to a faith and a deeper faith in your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are these words that remind us of the good news that we've been talking about from 1 Corinthians 15. It's a taunt of death. It says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Thanks be to God.